Let us pray. Father, your power has been demonstrated in our lives over and over again. For some of us, many times and for many years. For others, maybe for the very first time this week. Maybe for some that are here this morning, your power has never been demonstrated in their lives. So, Father, we pray this morning that as we approach your word, you would demonstrate your power in our lives again for some of us. For others, Lord, for the first time, we ask that you would speak. May the power of your word convict our lives of sin transform our lives by shaping us and molding us and may you give us joy in the midst of your word as we experience it this morning may you fill our hearts and our lives with a a love and a grand vision of of your goodness and your mercy toward us and we ask lord that as we approach your word you would give us eyes to see and minds to comprehend and hearts to love your word. And Lord, I pray this morning that as I speak and proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have your copy of the word of God, I want to invite you to open to the gospel of John. And we'll be in John chapter 15 and beginning chapter 16, the first four verses in chapter 16 this morning. But John chapter 15, verse 18 through 16, verse 4. The title of the message is, How Should We Live? It's a continuation from last week where we, we asked that question, How Should We Live? This week we see in relation to the world. How should we live in relation to the world? In fact, last week we said... Ask the question, how should we live? And the answer was, we should live by abiding in the vine as fruit-bearing branches who bring glory to God. That's how we should live. That should be the goal and the desire, the, uh, just the, the great trajectory of our lives. We would abide in the vine. As disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ, He has called us to be in Him so we saw last week the relationship was Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He does the work of pruning. And every branch in me is to be about bearing fruit. We do all of this, he said last week, for the glory of God. Verse 2 and verse 8 point us to see it's all for the glory of God. It's, it's done so that God might receive the glory through our lives. So this week we look at the disciples' relationship to the world. Last week, relationship to Christ as a true vine, to the Father, and us as disciples in Him. This week, we see the outflow or the result of what happens when we faithfully live in this way of being fruit-bearing branches. So Jesus, in verse 18, speaks to this particular Issue. So if you found your place in verse 18, say word, follow along as I read. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know, they do not know the one who sent me. If I had come and spoken to them, if I had not come and spoken to them, rather, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. You know, this text really, I think, seeks to answer this question. What happens when we live faithfully as fruit-bearing branches? And the answer really is twofold, isn't it? Do you see it in the text? Well, one is there will be rejection. Negatively, the answer is there will be rejection. But then positively, the answer is others will come to faith. They will hear the word and they will believe the word and they will follow me. They'll respond favorably when they hear the word. There will be belief. So there's rejection and there's belief. During World War I... Donald Gray Barnhouse led the son of a prominent American family to the Lord. This young man was in the service, but he showed the reality of his conversion immediately by professing Christ before all the soldiers in his military company. The war had ended and the day came when he was to return from from war back to his pre-war life in the wealthy suburb, suburb of a large American city. And he went and spoke to Mr. Barnhouse and he told him of his concern He was concerned about life with his family and he expressed that he he had fear that when he got back home he might return to the same old habits and the same routine that he had before he had met Christ. He was afraid that his love for his parents and his brothers and sisters and his friends and even his acquaintances would turn him from following after Christ. Barnhouse told him though, he said, if you're careful to make public confession of your faith... You won't have to worry. He said, he, you, you won't have those friends that don't care for Christ. In fact, those friends will give you up. As a result of this conversation, a young man, this young man agreed to go home. And, and he said, you know, the first ten people I come to when I get off the train at the station, I'm going to tell them of my conversion to Christ. And so he did so. The soldier went home almost immediately 
while he was still on the platform of the train station in this suburban area, one of these girls that he knew socially, just as a friend, came up to him as soon as he got off and she said, hey, how's it going? She was delighted to see him. How are you doing, she said. And he told her, he said, the greatest thing that could possibly happen to me has happened. She said, you're engaged to be married? He said, no. It's even better than that. I've taken the Lord Christ as my Savior. Immediately, the girl's expression just kind of froze. She mumbled a few polite words and went on her way. A short time later, the new Christian met a young man whom whom he had known before going into the service. He was a friend, and he said, man, it's good to see you back. We'll have some great parties now that you've returned. And then he said, I've just become a Christian. He was thinking, well, that's the second person. And all of a sudden, the frozen smile came over the other young man's face quickly as he changed the conversation. That circumstance was repeated over and over again on several occasions with a, a young couple, with two of his older friends that had come by again and again. It happened and it happened By this time, word had got around, and and soon some of his friends stopped seeing him, stopped wanting to hang around with him. He had become peculiar. He had become religious. He was a a holy roller. They may have even called him crazy for turning his life over to Christ. What had he done? He had surrendered to Christ. He had died to self and began following Christ. Christ. The same confession that had aligned him with Christ had separated him from those who didn't want to know Christ as Savior. They didn't even want to hear about Christ as Savior. In many ways, this is what Jesus is forewarning the disciples about. As we read through this text this morning, he's saying, listen, the world's going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples, and I think us as well, for for our interaction with the world. And in the text this morning, I I want us to see three guiding affirmations in Jesus' word to his disciples that I think inform our interaction with the world. These three guiding affirmations, they're, they're truths, or maybe you would say they're boundaries within our lives that we can, we can be assured of. That as we're faithfully living and following Christ, these things will take place in one form or another. But they're affirmations. In other words, remember these, remember these things. And so first, I want us to see this. We must remember We must remember our distinction and mission. We must remember our distinction and mission. In verses 18 and 19, we see this. You know, our our distinction and our mission speak about how we are different and what we are to be about, what, what we are to be engaging in, how we are to live, right? How should we live in relation to the world, Jesus is saying there's something distinctly different and unique about those who are his disciples, and it has to do with the mission that we live in. And so first, I I want us to see in in distinction, I, I, I want us to see that we are not of the world. 
right? We're not of the world. Look in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. You know, now, now, Jesus is saying that those who are in the world, they are the ones who are in active rebellion against God. Their thoughts and their plans in life, they, they don't make room for God at all. And so Jesus is saying, you are distinctly different. You look different. He's telling his disciples and he's telling us, we, looked, we look different. We're, we are to look different than the world as Christians, as followers of Christ. You know, we, I know as parents, we try to help our children understand this, and we want our children to understand this, that because of the, maybe the way that, and so children listen to this, maybe the way that, that your parents have disciplined you or, or told you that you can't specifically go and do something, or, or they don't want you hanging out in a certain area, or they, they put guidelines in place for your using uh, the iPad, right, or, or using uh, mobile devices. The, these things are all put in place, why? For your protection, and then, you know what happens when your friend comes over and says, hey, let's, let's play this game, and, and you say, well, no, I, I can't, mom doesn't want me to, or, or dad doesn't want me to, and they're, they're thinking, man, what, what are you talking about? They won't know, let's go over here and play, right? And you're tempted, you kind of tempt, maybe, you're, you're maybe tempted to go and play, but then you know deep down that your parents don't want you to, and you know why they don't want you to? It's because it's for your own protection, you know, and this is the case when we look at Scripture, when we look at God's world, word, when we say we are not of the world, when Jesus says we're not of the world, there's something that's distinctly different about the Christian's life. And that distinct difference, it separates us from the world. And the reason our parents, your parents, don't want you to play these games is because they want to protect your eyes from certain things or they want to protect your mind from certain things. They want to protect your life from specific things but you know what your friends don't understand that and sometimes you don't understand that either but this is a call of being distinctly different christian parents being distinctly different in our parenting right being being different we follow christ there are convictions that we must live out that we must faithfully follow what does it mean that we're not of the world. What, what does distinction look like? How, how is that distinction manifested in your life, believer? Like Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 can be helpful for us to at least remember where we've come from. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember that? In which you formerly walked according to the pattern of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. There was a time in your life, believer, where you were dead in trespasses and sins. And it wasn't until the grace of Christ so filled you, and the spirit of Christ so filled you to aliven you and create life in you, that you then began walking by the spirit and knowing the new life and the true life that comes from Christ. And it makes you different and so we're not to think of this as being some inward superiority i want to encourage you we we too must remember that we were once in the world we must remember that we were former rebels who have been saved by the grace of god 
and that our purpose in life now is to bring glory to God, to glorify God in all that we do. And so how do we do this? How do we look distinct? Well, we look distinct by looking more like Christ day by day and looking less like the world day by day. Not being of the world means that, get this, we're no longer interested in the, the treasures and the pleasures of sin. The treasures of the world are the pleasures of sin. That's not what drives us, right? Not being like the world means we're, we're driven by a, a passion and a desire to know Christ more, to live more faithfully following Him, that He is the, the, the chief goal and trajectory of our lives. And though we're tempted at times to pursue sin, our lives are on a heavenward trajectory. That means they're, they're headed... They're headed on this path to to heaven. We're looking unto Christ. And so we're not of the world. Secondly, I want you to see that not only are we not of the world, positively, our identity is in Christ. Those who are disciples and followers of Christ, our identity is in Christ. He says in verse 19, if you were not of the world, the world would hate you. But guess what? I chose you out of the world, right? Verse 16, he talks about he talks about being chosen out of, or choosing us out of the world. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. You see, the life of the disciple of Christ is one of bearing fruit. And as those who are chosen out of the world, you know, we are, we are placed in the vine. And so Jesus uses that analogy in chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser, and every branch in me is to bear fruit. And so the reality of the life of Christ's disciple is we are like John 3, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, we're born again, and we're put into the vine, and we grow out of the vine. And so here's the illustration for the believer in our identity. We are not of the world. Our identity is in Christ. And we grow out of the vine. That means we're nourished by Christ. Our life is filled with the knowledge of Christ. We're led by the Holy Spirit of God. And so the disciple's life is radically different, radically distinct. You see, true disciples will bear fruit. This idea of bearing fruit, it... It's what we looked at last week, abiding in the vine. It's the mission as, you, as you're going, you're bearing fruit, fruit that lasts and praying, asking the Father for Him to do a work as only He can do. It's a work that we ask the Father in the name of Christ to do for the glory of God. So remember, remember our distinction and our mission Believer, remember your distinction and mission as a child of God, uniquely called by God, appointed, chosen, out of the world to look different and to live for Him. Abide in the vine. Our primary mission, then, is to declare God's love to the world. I want you to see this in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But listen, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You know, this verse implies what we spoke about in verse 16 there. The verse implies that the disciples are going on mission. And so our primary mission is to declare God's love to the world. Isn't this what Christ did? 
Isn't this what he came for? He came to proclaim the love of God, to redeem the world. You see, we do this by remaining grounded in Christ's commands. In the midst of a a hating world, the disciples are charged to go out and to proclaim the word. They're going to persecute you, but if they kept my word, they're going to keep yours also. You're going to be speaking my word, in other words. It's the mission of proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection that the disciples are to be engaging in. This is the fruit that will last, that remains, that he speaks about in verse 16. And so here's the thing. The word became flesh in John 1.1. And then John 3.16 says, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his own son so that whoever, what, believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So the question that I ask us to consider this morning is what ways has God given us to be vocal and intentional about sharing God's love for the world, for our community, for those who are in our spheres of influence, those whom he has given us a responsibility to speak the truth and love to? I'm not saying that everyone in the world is going to persecute us and hate us. That doesn't happen. That won't happen. There will be many who hear the word of Christ and believe upon the word of Christ. And they don't reject Christ. Instead, they turn to him. But I guess a real question that we we must ask ourselves this morning is, is that happening? Through, Through our lives, individually, personally, through me, is that happening? Are those that I'm in contact with hearing and seeing a faithful display of the gospel? Not just seeing through a a good moral life, but are they hearing the hope of the gospel that resides within us? I mean, the hope of our salvation. Are we being vocal about speaking that hope to others? We, we, We must be. Jesus says they're going to believe They'll keep my word. Those, if they keep my word, they'll keep yours also. Meaning that you're speaking these commands of Christ. You're speaking these words of Christ, the hope of Christ. See, as we interact with the world, speaking in Christ's name, one of two things are going to happen. They're going to reject and be pushed away from Christ or... They're going to believe or be drawn nearer to Christ. And your life will be one of casting seed or sowing seed and watering seed. Letter D in this first point, remembering our distinction and mission is this. My responsibility is weightier than it was before I came to Christ. Now, I want to tell you where that comes from. For me, that that stems from asking this question and trying to answer this question. Now that I know, what am I doing about it? Now that I know, what am I doing about it? When I know my commission, when I know my responsibility in Christ, what, what am I doing about faithfully following and living out the mission that God has called me to? That doesn't mean that we get prideful and say, oh, these are the things that I'm doing right. And, uh, and it doesn't mean that we just beat ourselves up and say, oh, I, I just don't do anything right. No, but listen, when we look at God's word, we, as we'll see in a moment, we know the Holy Spirit will fill us and lead us and even testify of God's word so that we might testify on behalf of Christ for the glory of God. Listen, this is all for God's glory. 
It's not about you and it's not about me. This is about giving God glory in all that we do, recognizing and realizing that our greatest vocation in life is to live for the glory of God in everything that we do. Everything. So the first affirmation is remember our distinction and mission. The second affirmation, quickly, is this. Trust God, don't fear man. Trust God, don't fear man. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. You know, we all have fears and and, and doubts at times, don't we? I mean, there are times when maybe you feel the prompting of the Spirit to lead in prayer in a setting. And you cowardly say, oh, I can't do that. I'm not going to be offensive. I want to be politically correct, maybe. Or th- there are times when we, we exercise fear in that way, and, and I, would, I would say that's the fear of man. Uh, th- there are times when we doubt, when we doubt that uh, maybe what, what we just did was what God wanted us to do. Maybe the stance we just took was a stance that we, we, we needed to just verbally take or, or stand, and in, in, in maybe that was a hill that we needed to die on. And so we, we begin to doubt and wonder if that was really the, the case, right? I think we all walk through those times of fear and doubt, but, but I think this is the guiding affirmation that we need to hear. Trust God, don't fear man. In other words, as you're engaging in this mission, abiding in the vine, bearing fruit in your current situation, wherever you are in life, from, from children playing on the playground, playground to youth in high school to, uh, to being in college, to being in a work environment, to being a teacher, to whatever. Wherever we are, as we're engaging in the mission, remember Christ's words. Here's what he's telling the disciples. Believing in Christ's words will keep you from going astray. We need to hear that. Believing in Christ's words will keep us from going astray. He tells them, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. That word stumble, it's where we get our word in the Greek, or where we get our English word, scandal. It'll keep you from being scandalized. It'll it'll keep you from going astray. It'll keep you from leaving the faith. And so he's telling the disciples, don't let fear enter your hearts. Remember back in chapter 14, verse 1, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is a call to trust in God's word. And then we see here in in, in this text, in verse 1, he says, these things I've spoken, these are my words, I've spoken these. Why? I've spoken them so that they will keep you from stumbling. Don't let fear enter your hearts and minds. You know, Jesus knows firsthand the difficulty of being persecuted and being beaten. He knows the difficulty that his followers, his disciples, will experience through persecution, even death. And so he says, I've told you these things to keep you from going astray. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Grief, A Grief Observed, a Grief Observed. Um, it was a book that he wrote after he 
had watched his wife uh, walk through a, an intense time of pain and ultimately lose a battle to cancer and pass away. He, he wrote this. He said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong as long as you're merely using it to hold a box, but suppose you had to hang by that rope over a cliff. Wouldn't you then discover how much you really trusted it? You know, the question is, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to the words of Christ, are we really trusting and believing in the word of Christ for our daily living? Are we trusting Christ in the joy that comes from walking with him? Or are we living our lives in the fear of man? You know, trusting Christ is a, there's a great, a great contentment and joy when we're walking in the power, trusting in Christ, the power of his word. One of the greatest dangers facing the disciples in light of persecution would be denial of their faith. Even excommunication and, and death. You notice the progression in the text, verses 18 and 20, talk about hatred and persecution. They'll hate you, they will persecute you. Verse, verse 2 of chapter 16 says it's even execution and martyrdom. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Like They're, they're going to throw you out of the synagogue. And, listen, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that, they, that he is offering service to God. What about Saul? On the day that Stephen was martyred and he was standing there, giving hearty approval to every stone that was thrown to kill that brother in Christ. He thought he was doing a service to God. What about today what we see happening in the Middle East? Christians being slaughtered because of their faith in Christ. All the while, jihadists believe they're doing service to God. Times haven't changed. And the call for the Christian is one that is simple. Trust God. Don't fear man. Believe that God is powerful. Believe that His Word is true. It's worth staking our lives on. Verse 25 shows us God's Word is true. It It's a fulfillment of Scripture. What is happening is a fulfillment of Scripture. They've done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And I think we see this. God's revelation is clear. We see that God's word is true. Trust God, don't fear man. His word is true and his revelation is clear. Verses 22 through 24 show us this. It's, It's his spoken word, verse 22. Look at what he says. If, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. Now, it doesn't mean they would be sinless. They had sin. But there is a guilt associated with their sin. Why? Because they have rejected Christ. They've rejected God's revelation. He's come and he's spoken the word. And he has also done the works. And they have flat out rejected both the word that was evidenced by the works and the power that accompanied the miracles, the signs, and the wonders. So God's, God's revelation is clear. Their guilt was great because they rejected Christ. You know, today, similarly, all who hear the message of salvation through Christ's disciples, through you and I, all who hear the message and, and reject Christ Ultimately, here's what happens. They're not rejecting you. 
they are rejecting God himself. And in doing so, unfortunately, they seal their fate. And in one sense, it, it's, well, it's very tragic. It's tragic, and, and in one sense, it still remains a negative side of, of the church's mission of speaking the gospel. Here's 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him, that is Christ, in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we're an aroma of death to death. But to the other, we're an aroma of life to life. You know what that says? Some will hear the message and they will hate you. They will persecute you. Some will hear the message and the hope of the gospel and they will believe. And it will be a pleasing aroma of life to life. You see, trusting God means believing his word. It means believing that he is true even in the hour of persecution Our trust in God must be firm as we live out our faith and live out the fruit-bearing mission he has called us to. The third guiding affirmation is one that gives us great hope. And it's this, we we must depend on the Holy Spirit's testimony. And we close with this, we must depend on the Holy Spirit's testimony, trusting in God, trusting in Christ. The Holy Spirit's role, we see the Holy Spirit's role In our life, we know this. We know that we don't have to do this alone. God gives us of His Spirit. He leads us and guides us. Verse 26 and 27, when, when, listen, here's the role. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you, here's the promise, He sends the Helper, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, right? The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, here's what He does. He will testify about me. So we see the Holy Spirit's role. He is counselor, He is comforter, He is advocate, who one who comes alongside of His children. And He is, he is the one that gives testimony. The Spirit reveals the truth of God's Word into the life of His children. This is the promise that God gives us by His Spirit. For all who believe and profess faith in Christ, He has given us the deposit of His Spirit, and His Spirit leads us, directing us, guiding us to truth, informing us and teaching us of the truth of God, His revelation in word and deed. So, the disciples, Jesus tells them, here's what you're to do. You are to speak the testimony that the Holy Spirit gives you. And those things which you remember that I have spoken to you. And we know that Christ has, God has given us the mind of Christ to know the mystery revealed in Scripture and by the Holy Spirit He informs us and teaches us and leads us. And so we are to remember our distinction and mission. This is how we're to live in relation to the world. Trust God, don't fear man. And listen, depend on the Holy Spirit's testimony in your life. Listen to what the Spirit is saying. Don't quench the Spirit. Listen to what He's saying and follow as He leads. I want to ask you this morning, is your life distinct from the world? A simple yes won't do. How is it distinct from the world? 
Are you engaging in Christ's mission? Are you abiding in the vine? Are you bearing fruit on behalf of Christ? Are you trusting God? Are you fearing man? And finally, are you, are you depending on the Holy Spirit's testimony? Do you know the presence of the Spirit? Are you walking by the Spirit? I want to challenge you this morning. If, if, this, doesn't, if this doesn't adequately give you a sense of God's direction and vision for your life, then I want to ask you, do you know Christ? Do you know who He is? Do you know Him as Lord and Savior? Believer, this morning, is this, is this your desire? That you would live in this way? Be encouraged as you walk with Christ. Be encouraged to follow Him. Let me pray, and I want to invite you to respond as the Lord leads you this morning. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it speaks into our lives. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to work in our lives and give us your testimony of, of the word that we might of Christ, of our Lord, that we might speak faithfully and boldly for you and for your glory. Lord, let our lives be about bringing you glory. Let it be the anthem of our lives that we would desire to bring you glory in all that we do. Strengthen us now, Lord, to make commitments or to to be renewed and refreshed in ways that you're calling us to. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Strengthen us now to walk and abide in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.